Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to today's episode of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. Today, we're going to continue our month-long conversation on cities, built environment, and infrastructure. And today, we're going to focus in on and drill down on outdoor built environments, environmental and health impacts. Last week, we focused in on the indoor built environments, which is primarily dictated by a lot of air pollutants and things of that nature. So what, again, is the built environment? A definition set forth by the Center for Disease Control states that the built environment refers to man-made surroundings that individuals work, live, and interact in on a daily basis. Built environment generally includes spaces like public buildings, homes, office buildings, streets, sidewalks, and other city infrastructure. The built environment touches all aspects of our lives, encompassing not only the buildings we live and work in, um, this can include everything from simple housing to entire cities and even man-made outdoor environments. Built environments also include the distribution systems that provide us with water, electricity, and the roads, bridges, and transportation systems we use to get from place to place. And this is called infrastructure, which we're going to explore in detail next week on this show. Creating all these spaces and man-made or modified spaces and systems requires an enormous quantity of materials. Built environments provide the basic necessities for human life as we know it, and therefore they must be functional and healthy for everyone. And finding this balance is a complicated and a challenging process, and one that is constantly being refined. Human behavior experts and city planners work to discover what is the most positive use of space for people. A single building, for example, can also be studied for its effectiveness. And commercial building designs are constantly changing layouts to better accommodate the business and the people that take place and that work within those walls. And there's serious concerns about the health impacts that a built environment has on people. Studies have shown that people can be negatively influenced by their built environment, and planners and architects and other groups often study particular or specific areas and environments and implement changes to that environment to encourage or facilitate a more well-rounded, healthy community. And so this is a lot. And so here today to help us unpack some of this are two experts. We have Wendy Perdue. Wendy is Dean of the University of Richmond School of Law and a law professor. And then we have Hillary Vonador. Hillary is vice president with the U.S. Green Building Council. Wendy is also the immediate past president of the Association of American Law Schools, and she's a former vice president of the Legal Education Honor Society called the Order of the Cough. Wendy has held a number of other significant positions within legal education and the bar, including the editorial board of the Journal of Legal Education and the Board of Governors of the Virginia Bar Association. Her scholarship spans a number of areas, including civil procedure, conflict of laws, land use, and public health. 
Her publications include two case books and numerous articles and book chapters, and her scholarship has appeared in many, many journals and law reviews. And before joining the University of Richmond Law School as dean, Wendy was an associate dean and professor of law at Georgetown Law Center. Welcome, Wendy. We're so glad you could be with us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And our other guest is Hillary Varnador. Hillary, again, is vice president for cities at the U.S. Green Building Council. Hillary brings more than two decades of experience in public administration and nonprofit leadership to her role as vice president for Lead for Cities. Currently, Hillary supports local governments engaged in the Lead for Cities certification program. She also liaises to the Lead Cities and Communities Working Group. Previously, Hillary led Star Communities as its executive director and founding director. And in that capacity, she deployed the first framework and certification program for local sustainability in the U.S., as well as the Star Community Rating System. Hillary has served as a chief sustainability officer and principal planner in local government and has led two nonprofit organizations as CEO. Welcome, Hillary. We're so glad you could be with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Looking forward to it. Okay. Hillary, I want to start out with you. The U.S. Green Building Council is the preeminent organization in our country that provides guidance as well as rating buildings in the U.S. Most new buildings seem to be coming in with some type of LEED or U.S. Green Building certification especially those buildings that are associated with institutional uses or ownership. So will you tell us about how and why the U.S. Green Building Council got started, and then explain your building rating and certification system, and then finish us out with what this certification system means to ordinary people in their everyday lives. Why should they care that a building is LEED or that a building is certified by your organization? Sure. So, um, as you mentioned in your introduction, I oversee the Lead for Cities rating system at USGBC, but before Lead for Cities was uh, established, we go way back (laughs) into the 90s. Uh, 1993, actually, is when uh, a coalition of building industry leaders came together. It was actually at an American Institute of Architects meeting, um, they came together uh, to to put the rating system together and and really build the USGBC organization. So over 25 years ago, in 1998, that's when LEED itself was um, established, put out to market. And by 2000, uh, the first projects around the country were getting certified. So um, it's been a long time coming. as people may know, uh, the lead rating system, particularly, you know, we'll talk about buildings. I think we'll get into cities a little bit more later. Um, but we're really looking at, you know, energy, waste, water, um, the human experience inside the building. We're really thinking about the building materials, the products that go into the building, as well as the site selection, the location, you know, where the building has established itself. So um, the rating system's covering all of those aspects. Um, in terms of, you know, the kind of the motivation and instigation, like why people would do lead, I mean, obviously, as a, a building owner or manager, I think efficiency is one of the number one things, right? You want to save money. And so less energy use, less water use, um, better use of materials, less waste. Those are all um, efficient uh, steps to take. And so those help with bottom line for sure. 
But, you know, right now, I think in our current environment, um, we see particularly around in corporate America, but also in the public sector, there's a real commitment to um, sustainability and to doing the right thing, both for the people and the planet, right? Indeed. Now, what does LEAD actually stand for, or is that its pronoun in itself? It's leadership in energy and environmental design, um, and that's still, that makes, uh, that's for even the LEAD for Cities program. That's what that stands for. Okay. Now, there, there, there are various levels of LEAD, right? Yes. So um, all of our LEAD rating systems have certified silver, gold, and platinum as the levels. Okay. Um, so that's pretty standard, I think. And which one's the highest? Platinum's the highest. Yes, you want to get platinum. <laughs> Does USGBC do any other certifications other than LEED? Well, so USGBC actually doesn't do the certifications. We have a sister nonprofit, GBCI, that does our credentialing and our certification. And GBCI does um, also do certification of other rating systems. We have, like, basically at USGBC, what we like to say is, you know, LEED is a holistic, uh, triple bottom line um, based rating system. If you want to dig deep into a specific topic, then you might want to pursue a different rating system for that topic. For instance, SITES looks at landscapes. RELY goes deeper on resilience. PEER gets into the energy grid. So there's all these other rating systems that are part of our, our family or our suite of ratings um, that folks can get engaged with okay. if they want to go deeper on those issues. So again, you said LEAD is triple bottom line. What are those three again? Social, economic, and environmental. So basically a you know, building, or in the case of cities, an, over, an entire city, that want to, um, you know, really understand their performance on sustainability across all of those three areas. Um, that's why they would engage in those rating systems. So it is holistic, and it does include people along with that. One yeah. last thing before we go, and that is, is there a way or, in your opinion, how might someone be able to tell if they're in a lead building? I can kind of tell. Well, there's a plaque on the there's a plaque right when you walk in the door, so that's the that's the obvious piece. Mm -hmm. I think you know everybody knows the lead plaque, and that's accountability that's showing that that building um, is demonstrating leadership, and and it shows the date or the year as well. So you know if it says 2020, you know it, it's really up to speed. If it says um, maybe 2008 and they haven't updated, you're you might be asking them, hey, what are you guys doing to monitor um, the performance of this building over time? You said something interesting because I've never noticed the lead plaque, but I do have a sense of when I'm in a lead building from the field and certain things I see. But again, I'm probably more into this stuff than other people. <laughs> but we'll be right back on the other side of the break. We've been with Hillary Vonnerdor from the U.S. Green Building Council and with Wendy Purdue from the University of Richmond. She's dean of the law school there. So we'll be right back on the other side. And so we want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas Fort Worth Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available on online free for download at anydallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, 
offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to today's show on the outdoor built environment, environmental and health impacts. And we are back with Hillary Varnador, Vice President for Cities at the U.S. Green Building Council, and Wendy Perdue, Dean of the University of Richmond Law School. And right before the break, we were talking with Hillary about the various LEED certifications and what they mean and how they feel. And Hillary was letting us know that each lead building has a plaque on the outside of it. But I was letting her know that after all these years, I've never noticed one. But I can feel and tell when I am in a lead building. They tend to be airy and very open next to nature or some kind of way inviting nature in. And just very comfortable and utilitarian is my sense of things. So. Thank you for helping us out with that. One last thing, and and, uh, we will move on from the LEED certifications, and that is, do you have any idea of the numbers of buildings across our country that have LEED certifications? Yeah, well, sure. You know, I was actually going to talk globally because LEED is actually a global rating system. and That was my question as well, is that outside of our country or so, do tell us about that. Yeah, so we're we're in 180 countries and territories, so pretty significant. Um, There's more than 106,000 projects that are either registered or certified now globally. Um, But in the U.S., uh, we just put out, I think it was back in February, we do a a report that talks about the top states for LEED, and the top three, at least, were um, Massachusetts, Washington State, and Illinois. I will note that D.C. has the most um, LEED projects, but it's not a state, so it's not on the top uh, states for LEED, Um, but there's a real significant number of LEED-certified buildings in D.C., which is where our headquarters is, and so head on over to the Capitol, and you'll see plaques everywhere, Bernice. (laughs) That's interesting, because we have quite a few here in North Texas, and I tell you, I was surprised when I moved back here like 11 years ago, because I spent the previous 17 years in South Florida. In Miami, we're home of the new urbanist founders, you know, Andres Duani, Dover Cole, and all those guys. And a lot of people who started U.S. Green Building Council in South Florida. So I was so surprised when I moved here to find that in North Texas, they had more green buildings that were certified than they did in South Florida. Yet it was, South Florida was home to all of this. Okay, I'll figure this out at a later date. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just glad that it's growing all over the place. So well, thank you. Lead cities in both those places too. So you'll be happy to know that. And you can tell us more about lead cities later on. Thank you. <laughs> so Wendy, a while back, you authored a significant piece with the Georgetown Law Review on obesity, poverty, and the built environment challenges and opportunities. And while I want you to tell us from your work what you saw some significant impacts before you tell us that, tell us how did you get to be talking about built environment and public health from the Georgetown Law School? So uh, thank you so much for that question. Um, 
I got interested in the area when two pieces of my life came together. One, so I was on the faculty at, at Georgetown, and we had a very strong faculty in the public health arena, but that was not my area of study. Um, at the same time, I served on uh, the, um, the planning board of uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, um, and that's a, that's a board that, that uh, reviews projects, the built environment, throughout, the, throughout a fairly large uh, Maryland County, about a million people, that spans everything from very urban to um, entirely rural. So I had an opportunity to just look a lot at how do we build things, how do we, how do we situate buildings. Um, from my conversations with the public health people, what I came to understand was a curious phenomenon, which is that um, although this very sophisticated planning board had lots of people who studied the environment, which was terrific, we knew in great detail all about the health of the brown trout in our water system in Montgomery County, and we knew absolutely nothing about the health of the humans. When we did a project, we would talk a lot about what the impact would be on stormwater management and, again, how would it, how would it affect um, the flora and fauna. We did nothing on how would this affect the humans. Um, and it began to occur to me that this was a little odd and um, that how we build uh, our communities does affect um, the health of the humans um, and, and that we ought to be more uh, overtly attentive to that. So this is uh, that, that's the that's the origin story for some some of this work. Interesting. Thank you for thinking of that and moving forward because you are cited in a number of cases with built environment and health. So we're really glad that that ball it's really rolling fast and cannot be stopped. <laughs> we finally got it. We finally woke up to it. So again, thank you. With that, though, Wendy, from your work. What do you see are the most significant impacts of buildings and other man-made structures on our health? So um, the, the, the built environment, of course, unless you're in a very rural area, pretty much everything around you is, is, was put there by humans. It was put there uh, or altered by humans. So the, our, our environments um, that, that so many of us spend all our time in are um, human-made, and they have a huge impact on our our behavior and on our health. So, um, you know, some of our most significant um, health impacts, leaving COVID aside at the moment, um, aside from that, are, are chronic conditions. Um, yeah. uh, ob obesity, um, cardiovascular disease are um, the huge, huge impacts, um, health, health uh, uh, issues um, for large parts of our population. And those are diseases that are dramatically impacted by human behavior. Um, uh, exercise, um, physical activity, and diet. And those two are also dramatically impacted by the environment that you're in. So um, are there sidewalks? Are they safe? Um, how, can you, are, are there recreation facilities nearby? How easy um, and, and um, congenial is it to get physical exercise? On the food side, um, we know there are big parts of, uh, uh, there are many, many communities that some, some people would refer to as um, uh, food deserts, um, that there are, uh, there are plenty of um, liquor stores, but not places where you can get um, healthy food. And that, in turn, uh, has a dramatic impact on, on health. So, you know, uh, interestingly, since um, 
if you look back, say, uh, 1967, the number of grocery stores we had then, our population has, has increased dramatically since 1967. The number of grocery stores has declined by about 15%. But why is that? Well, we have, it's not that the amount of food has declined. Indeed, we probably have the other problem. Um, but we've moved to um, much larger um, food outlets. Now, that has lots of efficiency and, and provides um, way more uh, choice for consumers. But for many uh, individuals, it means access to food is, and, and healthy food options is significantly more limited. So if you if as we look at the issues of health and well-being, um, a comprehensive look would ask not only about are the buildings safe? We don't we want the stairs to be safe. We don't want lead paint. We don't want other things that cause health problems. Um, but a comprehensive look would look at um, does the community lend itself to the the um, set of healthy behaviors that will reinforce health in the population. Indeed, and I think that I heard Hillary mention that that is one of the things that the lead rating systems look at, and that's a good thing, and I don't think, I know, that most people, ordinary people in their everyday lives do not realize that LEED and the Green Building Certification incorporates that, and again, that's a good thing, and so I think we have to push that out there and, and make that better known. But my other question, two things, one for you and then one for Wendy. You mentioned their opportunities. So I want to talk about that. And then the other thing I want to mention for Hillary is what or do or is there any input from local populations about perhaps what goes into LEED? Maybe that's at the city and planning level. So I want to get to you next, but let me finish up with Wendy in that what were the opportunities that you saw and how have perhaps the challenges and opportunities evolved or manifested over the last few years? Well, as is so often the case, the opportunities and the challenges are, are interconnected. Um, you know, the, the opportunities are as we um, uh, make changes, um, we can be uh, intentional about the the communities that we're building. Now, in built-out environments, so in cities that already exist, um, that, that, that the challenge is um, it's relatively rare to, to start over. You might find pockets where that happens, but that, that's not the primary um, mode of, of, uh, of, of uh, change within those communities. Um, but there are opportunities, and some of it is is a is a matter of attentiveness. So, for example, when I was on one of the the uh, issues that uh, I fought about a bit with uh, the state uh, highway and and roads um, regulation, there there were regulations that uh, basically prohibited street trees in lots of places. Why would you prohibit street trees? Well, if there's street trees, it's possible a car could drive into them. Certainly true, and that's that's a safety risk. Um, it's also true without them, you may drive into pedestrians, um, and that's a different and but also important safety risk. And so the the opportunity is is a, is recognizing the trade-offs. I think when we started, you you mentioned something about finding balance. If you would say I want the roads completely safe, there's nothing that's going to obstruct any view. It's it's an extremely ro wide roadway, so. The cars won't bump into each other. 
Um, but that extremely wide roadway means it's much longer for pedestrians to cross. There are no trees. That makes it hotter and less pleasant to walk. Um, and now, now you have the trade-off on the other side. So I think part of that opportunity is being intentional and seeing the full picture of, of health and safety. And the question I ask, it may be rhetorical, we're going to go to break here, but I'll leave it with you. Why has so often in the past, and to a great degree now, why do things like the trees went out <laughs> over human health and human considerations? when we talk about building and construction. We're going to be right back on the other side with part two of our show on the built environment, its impacts on environment and health. And we are again with Hillary Varnador with the U.S. Green Building Council and Wendy Perdue with the University of Richmond Law School. Thank you, ladies. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on the outdoor built environment and environmental and health impacts. And we're here with two very smart ladies who are helping us dig into how these buildings and things like that impact our environment as well as our health and what it means to us, as well as talking about green building and trying to have us really get an understanding of what that's about. Right before the break, Wendy was pointing out and giving us an example of the complications involved in having environmentally sound buildings and protecting our outdoor built environment and the trade-offs at the human scale. And that is leading us right over to Hillary and a lot of the work that she does at the U.S. Green Building Council and her work with cities. So, Hillary, you do work with cities and governments in the urban planning and building permitting arenas to help ensure buildings and other structures are being built that have less environmental impact. So what are perhaps some of the most significant or effective ways that municipalities and governments can lower that carbon footprint of our buildings and make sure we have more environmentally positive buildings and structures, ones that are putting the human considerations and human health first? Well, you know, as you've probably seen in the media for the last several years, with um, when there was federal inaction on climate, the cities and, and, and counties in the country were really stepping up to the plate. Um, we're seeing, you know, climate mayors, all these groups are kind of forming to coalesce around uh, global climate targets and global climate action. And so um, things are changing now rapidly and a lot of climate action plans getting adopted. Um, you know, Earth Day, I couldn't believe all the cities that were announcing their climate action plan, you know, made it through councils. Pretty exciting just a couple of weeks ago. But, but to your question, you know, globally buildings consume about 40 per, or create, excuse me, create about 40% of our global emissions. So that's a lot. Um, so we know that we need to do work on our buildings in terms of the carbon footprint that you brought up, right? So a lot of that is around, obviously, energy efficiency first. We need to make them efficient before we can add renewables. Um, but right now, I think that the, the, these are big words, but decarbonization and electrification, those movements are really gaining steam. We're seeing um, 
cities, you know, from a lot of cities in California, San Jose being one of them, putting out reach codes that include electrification, um, even natural gas, um, saying that there can be no new natural gas put into like new residential projects and whatnot, really trying to um, decarbonize the grid. I just put a pin in your conversation right there, and I want to just go backtrack a little bit with you. Again, back to what you said, let's define those words, decarbonization. I've done that before. Removing the carbon, what does that mean to people, ordinary people in their everyday yeah. lives? I don't know why cities have to put these I know, words, words on them. I think the most <laughs> simple thing to think about is that you know, when, you, when you're using power in your house and you have the electric on or what have you, you know that that power comes from a lot of different sources. Where I live in Maryland, there's some coal, um, there's some, you know, there are renewables on the grid. We actually have some, uh, we have a standard in this region where we have to have a certain percent of renewables on our grid. So trying to make a cleaner grid. The goal is the more you're using electric um, for, your, for your energy in your buildings, um, you can put more renewable onto that grid. You know, we can have more wind turbines and wind farms and offshore wind. We can have more solar and all these other sources. And it's moving us away to sources of energy that are more carbon intensive or create more emissions. To reemphasize, carbon is things that burn. Fossil fuel. Fossil fuel. Those things create carbon. So decarbonization is getting us away from coal. Right. Coal and oil oil. and gas and those kind of things. If you've lived in a house like me that had heating oil, you know how dirty that is. Um, It's dirty in your cellar. (laughs) It's also, um, you know, creates, it's combusting, you know, in your house. So the idea is not only to reduce your bills and reduce greenhouse gas emissions and help the global climate movement, but also personal health, right? It's better personally, it's cleaner. So um, that's a big part of what's happened. There's a lot around buildings. Um, So there's obviously green building policies and incentives in place like Orlando, Florida just recently um, had put in um, to play a green building incentive. Like if you build to lead uh, silver, gold, or platinum, you're going to get tax rebates, um, you know, for that company. Um, Local Law 97 in New York City back in 2019 was one of the biggest and first (laughs) of its kind. It was a putting carbon caps on buildings over 25,000 square feet and basically telling the buildings that they, at that scale, that they had to um, also be a part of the city's commitment to reducing overall emissions 80% by 2050. So there's just so much happening on that. But I wanted to say one other piece here on, on the carbon footprint. You know, it's not just the building. Uh, Wendy brought up uh, the way we move our mobility, right? And transportation in the U.S., is actually 29% of emissions. So we're driving everywhere, right? So I think, you know, in order for your your carbon footprint to be down, obviously you got a lot of work to do in your building, but you also have a lot to do around how people get to the building, how they're using the building, are they using transit, are they biking, are they walking, are they all driving in a single occupancy vehicle? We actually do a number of shows with one big show on transportation. And I dare say that most people don't realize or conceive of the fact that the buildings are causing more emission than the transportation. And yeah. I don't know why that is. 
Right. Well, because there are a lot of different kinds of buildings. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's not just residential. You know, you have to think about it. it's it's the electricity. Right. You know, overall. Yeah. They get it with the transportation, but they don't realize the impact of buildings. And like you said, and buildings do it in various ways. You know. Yeah, I, mean, I like to bring this down per, real personal. I mean, just, you know, it can, these issues can sound so big and overwhelming and hard to tackle. I think, Wendy, you made some really good points about, you know, well, first, thanks for serving on the planning board. That's a hard job. I was the actual planner, so I reported <laughs> to people like you. Um, but, um, you know, so thanks for your service. But I think, you know, for people just to realize the things that they can do in their own home, and you're concentrating on outdoor built environment today. So there's things you can do outside, right? I mean, now we're talking about carbon right now. I think that has a lot to do with your driving patterns and, you know, what you do inside of the house. But on the broader um, kind of green building and environmental practices, you know, whether you're um, doing things to reduce the, the urban heat, so um, you're planting things, you know, whether it's gardens or trees and shrubs, depending on whatever you're, you know, wherever you live and whatever is appropriate there, using less water, keeping the water on site. You know, there's a lot of practices you can do today that just help out your whole community and your city. In addition to obviously make sure you have LED light bulbs and don't, you know, right. off all that basic yeah. stuff. And I think people are hearing a lot of that today that that is beginning to filter down and sink sink down a little bit but it's things like that that kind of lead us at the mercy where our human health has way too often not been considered in a lot of the considerations and the regulations that go into putting together the building spaces that we live work and play in so I, I, the, the one observation I'd make about that is that, uh, to a certain extent, we, we, we deal with those issues after the fact through litigation. Um, <laughs> other places deal with it um, at the front end, but with front-end regulation, and we do less of that and, and deal with things after the fact, which I know is going on on some of the materials from China. Um, we, we hope to provide appropriate incentives through, um, again, after the fact litigation. Indeed, and I have to think, too, that this is something that maybe the U.S. Green Building Council will be forced into. Thank you so much. We're going to go to break now. Uh, thank you so much with uh, you ladies who've been with us, and you've really helped us to understand this a little bit more. It's a lot to unpack and a big area, which is why on the show we're kind of breaking it down. Last week we were indoor built environments. This week is outdoor. Next week we deal with infrastructure. And on the final week, we kind of deal with chemicals and toxicities and things like that. So thank you so much. We've been with Hillary Vonador with the U.S. Green Building Council and Wendy Perdue with the University of Richmond Law School. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakening, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. And our other sponsor is Lindental Care, 
practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsor. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And today we have our Pulse of the Community segment. And with us today on the Pulse of the Community, we have Dr. Frank Schallenberger, who is founder of the Nevada Center of Alternative and Anti-Aging Medicine. And they are hosting a conference next weekend here out in Las Colinas on ozone therapy. Dr. Schellenberger has been practicing medicine since 1973, and he has developed and patented the first method using VO2 and VCO2 analysis to measure mitochondrial function in a clinical setting known as bioenergy testing, and he has written two books on the importance of measuring and optimizing mitochondrial function. So what is mitochondrial function? Well, mitochondria are membrane-bound structures within our cells that generate most of the chemical energy needed to power the cell's biochemical activities. And Dr. Schellenberger is also the president of the Nevada State Homeopathic and Integrative Medicine Association, and he was appointed by the governor of Nevada to serve on the Nevada State Board of Homeopathic Medical Examiners. And today, Dr. Schallenberger is here to talk to us about and help us understand more about ozone, which we talk a lot about, especially in the summertime here in North Texas. And we talk a lot about ozone, too, on Healthy Living, Healthy Planet radio shows when we're talking about air pollution. And as we have discussed in the past, in terms of air quality and air pollution, and again, specifically here in North Texas, because North Texas has been under a federal air quality standard non-attainment status for like about 15 years. And in the summer, we have many, many, many days that we are at high ozone alert when they tell us to stay inside if we can. Yet, in my dentist office and many other holistic dentist office, they use ozone in their practices, all through their practices, as a means for disinfectant cleaning, but primarily for the healing purposes. So we want to understand why this large gap and why this large dichotomy in ozone, its uses, its benefits, and its hazards. So Dr. Schallenberger, will you start us off by explaining to people exactly what ozone is, and then explain the difference in the ozone that affects air quality and that ozone from which many people with allergen and asthma must stay indoors on summer days in Texas, the difference between that and the ozone that my dentist uses in his water and many other aspects of his practice. Sure. Okay. So basically, ozone is three oxygen atoms. Now, that's different from the oxygen that we breathe in, which is two oxygen atoms. So in order to make ozone, we take pure oxygen, pure O2, we run it through what's called a generator, and in the generator, that O2 is converted to O3. 
And the O3 has three oxygen atoms as opposed to two, which makes it a much more powerful molecule than regular oxygen. So that the things I'm going to talk to you about that we use in the medical world uh, with ozone, if you just use oxygen, it won't work. You have to use ozone because it's, it's powerful enough. Regular oxygen isn't powerful enough. But that's what pure ozone is. It's pure oxygen, and it's three oxygen atoms instead of two. Now, the difference between uh, – the, the, the thing you've got to understand is that uh, ozone works fabulous in the human body in every area except the lungs. You can't inhale ozone. And ozone will – create a very bad reaction in the lungs. So that's the pollution deal. Uh, but, you know, and then, then the other thing is with pollution, you know, you've got ozone mixed in with all the hydrocarbons and the nitric oxides and all the other junk and pollution. And that's all of that tagged together is aggravating to the lungs. But so everybody needs to know that when in the medical world, when we use this ozone I'm talking about, we don't get it anywhere near the lungs. But in every other part of the body, it's perfectly acceptable. Okay, but let me ask you this, just so people can understand. Is it the same ozone, or you guys have engineered it so that the, the, the things that are mixed in with that oxygen are good things, as opposed to the things that are mixed in with that oxygen uh, in the summer that rise from the street and that causes air pollution? Now, I, I, I want to understand the difference in those yeah, things. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the same ozone. Okay. So the the, the air and the ozone in the in the pollution is the same ozone that we use in the medical world. In either case, you can't inhale it. You can't put okay. it in the lungs. Do they do something like go out there and capture it on the street <laughs> or in the air and then kind of take it to their office and use it, or that's just not physically possible to do? No, we we actually manufacture right in the office. So if you were to I see gotcha. them come to my office here, you'd see an oxygen tank, a pure medical grade oxygen connected to a little device called a generator, and I run that oxygen through the generator, and the oxygen's O2, and what comes out the other end is O3, or ozone, and I just use that. I got you. Well, I have to think, too, that ozone that's causing air pollution has got, like you said, a lot of that dirt and other things in it, that combustion, you know, things that are coming out of the tail end of our cars, things that are yeah. coming out of smokestacks, and things like that as well. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very bad mixture that's just totally irritating to the lungs. Any other place, we can put it. Just can't put it there. And how does this good and healthy turn into bad with the negative health impacts? And I think you're telling us it's how it's used or the use of it. That is amazingly interesting. <laughs> Again, how so, how so bad can be so beneficial. And so that leads us into tell us more about the beneficial components, effects, and uses of ozone and ozone therapy. Yeah, let me just, uh, let me just say overall, the big picture is this. Uh, and, I, and I found this out over decades. No, and, and I teach a lot of doctors, so I get feedback from doctors as well, of all persuasions, neurologists, cardiologists, gynecologists, all the, all, whatever. Um, and I can say unequivocally uh, that no matter what a doctor is doing, no matter what his specialty is, if he were to add ozone in addition to what he's doing, his results are going to be incredibly better across the board. And I can say that uh, because, number one, that's what happens. But also the reason is that ozone has so many power. It's, remember, it's oxygen. It has so many powerful 
stimulating effects on the human body, that it can be uh, used to regenerate damaged tissue. It can be used to bring the immune system back into perfection. It can be used to stimulate circulation. It can be used to uh, stimulate mitochondrial function and slow down the aging process. It can be used to fight infections. It just has a br very broad spectrum of use because, after all, it is oxygen, which is, you know, used by every cell. And, and it, it's applicable to virtually every kind of medical procedure we do. As I mentioned to you earlier, I go to a holistic dentist, and we have a holistic dentist who's one of our sponsors. And I know that they all use ozone. But give us some examples of some other medical uses of ozone, like how would a neurologist, a gynecologist, or just you know, an example of some of the uses that people may be familiar with wherein ozone has been and could be used to make things better. Okay. So uh, let's say you got coronary artery disease. And okay. uh, the, you see the doctor, and the doctor says, you know what, uh, I've got to put you on this medication, and it looks like we might have to do a bypass surgery. You could get away without the bypass surgery by just staying on the medication and adding ozone in. It'll open up the arteries so that the, you don't actually need to do the surgery, for example. Or if you have a case that's so bad and you had to do the surgery, if you're pre-treated with ozone, that patient will heal so much better in any surgery, in, in fact. The patient will heal twice as fast, much less chance of complication from the anesthesia, much less chance of complications from, uh, say, infections, much fewer, lower use of uh, pain medication because ozone is a potent, has the potent ability to diminish pain rather dramatically. We only have about one minute to go, Dr. Schellenberger. Anything else that we need to know about the beneficial components and effects and uses of ozone and ozone therapy? Well, let me just, if I got a minute, let me just say this. I've written a number of books on ozone therapy. Some of them are suitable for, uh, you know, doctors and practitioners. And one of them is called The Ozone Miracle. That's suitable to lay people. You can get okay. all those books on Amazon, and that will go through all the literature and describe all the biochemical and physiological properties of ozone therapy and how you can use it. And so I would suggest people check those books out, and you can learn a lot about it that way. Interesting. Thank you. Because it also seems, and I, we will touch upon this at a later date, maybe we'll have you back. On this show, we look at a lot of the health impacts of environmental issues, like plastic pollution, taking plastic into your body, toxic chemicals. And we've been told that it may be some uses for, you know, ozone therapy in helping people to perhaps rid themselves of the body of some of those chemicals or detrimental effects. So that's another good use, perhaps, of ozone that we'll hope to be able to explore later on. Yeah, we could talk about the uh, ability to use ozone in a detoxification process. It's very good at that. Indeed, we'll have you on another time when we're talking about that, because we talk a lot about the issues with lung health and, and heart health with some of these pollutants. And whenever we do that, we like to offer some solutions so we don't leave people just, you know, afraid or at wit's end. So thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Schellenberger. Good luck on the conference next weekend. You have really helped us understand some of the other side of the benefits of ozone. Thank you so much. And thank you, oh, listeners. You're very welcome. Glad to be with you. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. 
the conversation starts here. But our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourself. And each of them can seem insignificant, but all of them add up, one way or the other, to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening in today. And join us again next week for more on the built environment, health, and environmental impacts. Thank you.